Hey, it's Isabel. If you like Borderline, please share it. Like, right now. Think of a friend who you think would like this podcast and just hit share on the app or send them just a quick text that said www.borderlinepod.com. Check it out. It's good. That's it. That's all I'm asking of you this week. No advertising, no nothing. Just share the love. Thank you. I do consider myself in many ways Polish and American and Swedish and Bengali. And on top of that, there's the identity of I'm an immigrant, I'm Muslim, I'm a journalist, I'm a Desi. So there's all these identities that are constantly at play. And instead of pitting themselves against each other, I just embrace it all. I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. My friend Danny has a game or an experiment he taught me. Picture a Midwestern American man in your head. Do you see him? Maybe in a t-shirt or a baseball cap from his college football team? Okay, keep him in mind. Now picture a Swede, a Viking. Now picture a man from Bangladesh. I'm pretty sure none of the men in your head look, talk, or behave anything like Danny. Yet he is every one of those things, and more, and none of them. Danny lives at the most intense end of the scale of global citizens. He's a third culture kid. They spend their formative years in many countries, often tossed around by the military or diplomatic career of a parent, and absorb each culture intensely as their own, creating a cocktail of identities like a custom signature fragrance only one person can wear, or that you share at most with a sibling. And chatted about all that with Danny for today's episode, the second in the Border Life series, examining the life stories and identities of global citizens and what home even means. We talked about culture shock and reverse culture shock, which anyone listening who's a former exchange student is going to be well familiar with, and about the difficulty of accepting the status quo at home when you know how things are done elsewhere how experiencing life abroad opens your eyes to the many nuances of the human experience. But also we talked about the urge that others feel to put us in a box. Midwestern dude, Viking, American-born confused Daisy. This one will be explained. To understand our labels so that they can understand us. And the uncomfortable but fascinating and joyful places that you inhabit when you fit in nowhere and everywhere. Meet my friend Danny who's also my friend Ferdos. Officially, my name is Ferdos Al-Farouk. And so whenever I write a byline or anything, uh, I use Ferdos Al-Farouk. But everybody calls me Danny, and it's not something that I gave myself. It's actually a nickname that my parents have been calling me all my life. I was born in Bangladesh. I left when I was four and a half, moved to Sweden. My dad was diplomat, so that's why we moved. I lived there for uh, about eight and a half years until I was 13. Uh, and then I moved back to Bangladesh for about a year and a half. And then I moved to Poland for five years. After that, I graduated high school, moved to the U.S., initially started out in Chicago. And then after spending about two years in Chicago, I transferred to the University of Missouri. I finished a journalism and political science degrees at the University of Missouri, and then I moved to Canada for a little bit in between and then was able to come back to Missouri to do my master's, which unfortunately I haven't finished yet because I went through a 
series of uh, job offers. And uh, essentially that led me to decide that I can do my master's later, but right now I you know, need to make some money. So I am now a, a journalist covering the medical device and diagnostics industry for a publication called MedTech Insight. All right. So that's a very quick summary of like your entire life. I've been through this quite a few times, so I've, I've kind of got it down to a science. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I kind of want to go back to, to where you started, which is your name, because yeah. I, I am fascinated by that because I know mm-hmm. you under two names, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always known you as Danny, but can you explain a bit more about that? that two names thing? Cause I thought it was something that you had adopted. Like we see a lot of people with hard to pronounce names kind of adopt an Anglo name to make things easier, but that's not it. Is it? No, no, no. So in, in Bangladesh or in Bengali culture, you have your official name, which we called Palonam and Palonam means your good name. It literally means your good name. And so in my case is Firdos and my family name is Al Farouk. I'm Muslim and Firdos uh, in Islam is the seventh heaven. So genital Firdos is the highest level of heaven in Islam. And Al-Farouk, I think, in Arabic means um, the one who knows right from wrong. We're not really Arab or from the Middle East, we're from Bangladesh, but somehow my dad decided he was going to use his first name as our family name, and so we got stuck with that. And then I don't know exactly how my parents decided to give me the nickname Danny, but I think my dad had a boss uh, when he was uh, young, working for the Ministry of Statistics named Danny Larson. And I think they kind of like just liked the name, the sound of the name. And so they gave me Danny because in Bangladesh, you have other nicknames or what we call Daknam. And that literally translates to your call name. And in my case, they just gave me Danny, which again has like biblical references because or religious references because Danny is from the name Daniel, which in the Torah, I think means God's judge. And typically in Bengali culture, your nickname has a lot more significance than your official name. If you read the book, the namesake explains that if you give a nickname, it's kind of supposed to be aspirational. You give it to somebody so that they're reminded that this is the the future or the upbringing or the person that their parents wanted them to be. But in my case, it was the reverse because for those was given to me by my grandfather, who apparently saw me and said, oh, this is heaven. So I ended up getting Firdos. And my parents just needed a nickname, so they decided on Danny. Typically, it would have been the other way around. So that's how I ended up with my names. So I hope that explains it. It does. It's, it's super interesting. That's a lot of meaning in a name. Yeah. I just have a name because my parents like the sound of it, but... Yeah. Well, it's funny because of this idea that I gave myself a name, I've had friends who, when I uh, was visiting my parents, would call and they thought that, actually, a, a boss of mine did this. She called and she thought, oh, maybe I use Danny as just a way for, like, Americans to be able to pronounce my name. And she wanted to be respectful, she, so she called uh, for a job interview and she was like, can I speak to you for dose, please? And my mom is like, I'm nobody by that name yet. And she like drops the phone. And I'm like literally like maybe (laughs) two feet because I can hear the entire conversation on the phone. And I'm just like looking at her. I'm like, what, you don't remember my name? Because she's never called me. She always calls me Danny, as does everybody else in my family. So I think like even if I ask my mom right now, hey, mom, what's my, you know, official name? She'll take a moment to think about it. 
That's funny. Well, Danny, it is done. You sound totally American, I have to say, mm. which, which I get as well. And I have the hard last names as well. So I hear you. When you're asked where you're from, what would be your first answer? Like, what's the one that, that resonates most or, or is there any of those many identities that resonates most? I would say like the place that I feel most at home is Stockholm, Sweden. I've had so so many good memories. It's a wonderful place. The people are wonderful. And it's kind of got this, I don't know, like a, a utopian feel to it. Every data on societies out there basically says the Nordic countries are the best places to live. And living there, some of my formative years and large part of my childhood, you kind of didn't appreciate it because you were like, this is what everybody else is living through. This is normal. And then I moved to Bangladesh, which I also consider home as well, but it is a very, very different kind of place. I kind of got this like shock because uh, I went from living in what is essentially the closest thing to a utopia today to a kind of uh, place where it's kind of a dog eat dog world. Poverty is really bad pollution is really bad. There is just so much that contrasts negatively against Sweden that it was a bit of a shock as soon as I got to Bangladesh. So tell me more uh, about that when you went back from Sweden to Bangladesh and that, that feeling. How old were you then? I was 13. 13. Okay. So yeah, yeah. That, and that's a particular time as well, kind of that transition yeah. from childhood to, to adolescence. Um, yeah. How was that sort of like, that culture shock, that, that reverse culture shock of going back to Bangladesh? And, and how were you received by your peers in Bangladesh? So I think what I would say in Bangladesh, the, the way that I was received, there's a couple of ways to explain it. One, I'm the eldest in the family. So I ended up getting a lot of respect, a lot of admiration just because uh, of my position in the family. But also, I think a lot of people are very curious about Westerners, and they kind of saw me as a bit of a Westerner because I'd lived this, so much of my life there. But I'm also a bit of a chameleon. Very quickly after I moved to Bangladesh, I adopted a more Bangladeshi clothing, and my Bengali got better. I lost any accent that I might have had. And so when I would go out, I don't think people realized that I was raised outside of Bangladesh. Um, and a lot of my relatives were kind of surprised about that as well, that I had adapted so quickly. I, I was kind of able to experience Bangladesh from a very local level, but also brought this perspective, this Western perspective to Bangladesh. Bangladesh is still very much a patriarchal society, very much a society where there is a giant difference between rich and the poor. I remember my family ended up eventually being forced by my grandparents to take in a, a servant girl who was maybe, I don't know, I think maybe like five or six. It was just ridiculous. And she only stayed with us for like two weeks. My mom was like, no, I can't do this. I can't have her working. Uh, and it's funny because my mom was raised in that culture. But having lived in Sweden for so long, it just felt wrong. And so we sent her back home. There was a lot of these things that happened that kind of felt uncomfortable because I was, again, like raised in this kind of egalitarian Swedish society. I remember in particular, we had this one kid. So his dad was a rickshaw driver and his dad got really ill. So he decided to take over his dad's rickshaw 
and provide for the family because if he didn't, they would basically starve to death. And this kid was maybe, I would say, nine, maybe even like eight. And he was pulling a rickshaw like he was a, a grown man. And so my parents, they had this deal with him. And he was like, all right, every day at this time, you come and take my kids to school, even though I was older than this kid. And my brother was about his age at the time. They're like, all right, you take him to school and you bring him back. And I remember this one particular day we were in a monsoon storm. My dad came with the kid to pick me up. And the kid tried to like cover us with this tarp, but the, the tarp didn't really do much. And we got soaked, but the kid got really soaked. And for every two pedals he would make forward, he would be pushed back one pedal. Um, and it was just this awful struggle. And I just felt incredibly guilty. And then finally, when we got home, I told my dad, like, like I cried. I was like, please give him more money because uh, I was really afraid the kid was going to get pneumonia and die. And I understood that in Bangladesh, if somebody gets some of these very common diseases that we uh, accept in the West, they can literally die because they can't afford health care. And so, yeah, no, I, I just remember not accepting the reality in Bangladesh as reality because I was raised in Sweden. I couldn't accept that this is unfortunately how people live and die in Bangladesh. Yeah, it's really, it's a really powerful story. And it's, it's really interesting because living somewhere else opened your eyes to how different things could be, which makes accepting the status quo much harder. I wonder, since you sort of contrasted that experience of living in a sort of the ultimate social democracy, and then a very unequal and much poorer country, how does it work then when you move to the US? Because that's kind of yet another side of that coin where it's a much richer country, but also not an equal one in many ways. How does that work? Did you kind of bring that perspective as well? I did. I mean, I, I kind of found it shocking that you kind of hear these like cliches. The United States is the richest country in the world, uh, the most free country in the world. And looking at, again, like my upbringing in Sweden, I, I disagreed. I'm like, no, I don't think you are the most free country in the world because I think Sweden has more freedoms in many ways uh, and rights. For example, I think women have more freedom and rights in Sweden than the U.S. I think freedom of expression in many ways is less curtailed in a country like Sweden. Obviously, it's not, it's, it's no Bangladesh. I think it's far better than Bangladesh uh, and many other countries. But when it comes to contrasting it with other Western industrialized democratic countries, it is lagging in so many ways. It, there's, you know, a lot of idealism. I think people talk about a lot of values, but at the end of the day, those don't show up in the system of government that we have. I mean, I would say that we don't actually even have a democratic system of government because if we look at, and I'm not you know, trying to be political here, but as a political scientist, if we look at the 2016 election and the fact that the president lost 3 million more votes than Hillary Clinton did and yet still won the election, if that had happened in any other country, we would laugh at that. As Americans, we would say, that's a joke. That's not a democracy. And yet we accept it when it happens in our own country. And again, not trying to be political, but I just we have to have a serious conversation about what is a democracy and what does it mean to be an American? I noticed that you, you say we as American because you, you do have American citizenship now, do you? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yet another kind of 
layer of identity as well. Yeah. Whenever I'm having a conversation, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, so as a Swede or as a Pole or as an American, and I think one of my friends, it really frustrated her because he's like, I don't know what you are. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's, that's fine. That's kind of my upbringing is I, I do feel connected to all the places I've lived in. And, and, I, and I, I say, like, when I say I'm a Pole, I don't mean that, hey, I, I went to Poland for a brief period of time and kind of like um, lived this kind of isolated expat life that a lot of people do, I actually lived in Polish society and had to like adjust to Polish society. And the same thing for the US, you know, when I, when I moved here, I kind of had to like adjust to US life. So I do consider myself in many ways, Polish and American and Swedish and Bengali. And on top of that, there's the identity of I'm an immigrant, I'm Muslim, I'm a journalist. I'm a Desi, which you know encompasses much of South Asia. So there's all these identities that are constantly at play. And instead of pitting themselves against each other, I just embrace it all. I love that. It, it's interesting because uh, you're talking about sort of how people from the outside are like, I can't pin you down, which, which I find fascinating. I find it's something that that people really want to do is is be able to put you in a box. I know when when people hear me speak here, they always just give me this look that I'm like, I know what you're trying to do right now, which is you're trying to figure out where my accent is from so that you can put me in the box that you want to put me in. And because I don't sound French, when I say I'm French, they're like, what? And they, they absolutely want to put me as a, in as a, as a Canadian because they're like, it, I, I kind of sound North Canadian, <laughs> but there's some French in there, so maybe it's Canadian, except I really don't sound Canadian. And, and I've heard everything from Dutch to Irish somehow. Honestly, now that I think about it, I would have probably done the same thing. If we first started talking, I would have heard a slight bit of the accent. I would have said, oh, you're probably Canadian. Yeah. Yeah, because and it's, it's complete, I, I don't blame people for it. It's completely natural. We're used to putting people in categories because it helps us understand where they come from and, and start to make assumptions about how they're going to react to particular things, which is kind of how you decode someone before you really know them. I would say growing up, I've gone through a lot of different accents because I've had uh, teachers. My first accent was actually Scottish because um, my, kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher was Scottish. So I'd talk to her like this, like coming in. And she was very proud about it because she'd you know, say things with more of an English accent. But every now and then she'd like dive right into her Scottish side. And so... <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd come in the morning and, be, and, and I, I was always hungry. So I'd walk in and be like, Miss Haldane, can I have lunch? It's like, no, Danny, it's too early for lunch. You got to wait until lunch for later. So I'm trying to picture a little Bengali boy sounding like full <laughs> Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. So no, I, had, I had a little bit of that accent. And then growing up, I also grew up with uh, Robin Williams. So I loved how he would do accents and voices and stuff like that. So I started doing a lot of that. And I've lost most of it because in college, me and my roommate kind of sat there and we kind of went through all the different accents that I could do. So my, my ongoing joke when everybody is like, well, your English is so good because a lot of times that comes off as a little offensive. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, duh. But, but, but then I'm like, well, actually, this is my real accent. All the other times I am doing an accent for you. And so that, that confuses the hell out of them. Recently, one of my friends, he's a journalism professor, and he invited me. We, we kind of teach his class, this interviewing class. And every year I'll go in and the kids will interview me and they'll try to dig into who I am and try to write a story about me. 
But this year I went in and immediately I went with my Indian accent. And so I talked like this for like about, you know, 10, 15 minutes and they would ask me questions and they were not as engaged or interested or asking deeper questions until my friend tapped me on the shoulder and the middle of my conversation, I switched to my Midwestern regular accent here and literally their eyes looked like it would explode out of their sockets. They were just like, what is going on? They freaked out. And so we stopped the class at that point and we asked them like, why did we do this? And the response was, we did this. And one of the students got it right. She like immediately raised her hand and was the one Asian student in the class. And she's like, because when people see you, they come with all sorts of preconceived notions about who you are. And when you're interviewing people, you kind of have to throw those preconceived notions out the window and let the person kind of stand on their own and ask them questions, really basic questions to try to kind of dig into who they are because stereotypes can be useful. They can help you understand a person, but only to a certain degree because generalizing who a person is is where you get in trouble as a journalist, especially. So you don't want to generalize a person's upbringing just by the way they look, by the way they talk, or generalize what they believe in, who they are. I like hunting. I like shooting, kind of like an outdoorsy guy. And every time I go out in the U.S., it confuses everybody. I, I remember I went to a hunting trip and there are all these like very, I would say, southern, very kind of stereotypically red state kind of guys. And so we're sitting there and we're talking about hunting rifles and hunting practices and stuff like this. And at one point, one of the guys kind of like, he, he was just sitting there the you know, entire time, kind of like with this look of disbelief in his eyes. And he kind of looked at me and goes, son, you must be the first Muslim redneck there ever was. And I was like, yeah, that's nice. I'll take that. Muslim redneck. That should be your tagline. <laughs> that should be my tagline. I should, I, should write a, I should write a biography called The Muslim Redneck. Again, like this is natural human behavior. You're trying to understand a person. You're trying to understand where they're from. And, and so when somebody kind of like comes out of left field and starts talking about things that you never associate with that culture or that group of people, it can be a little jarring. Yeah. I'm just thinking back of, of that, that thing in the journalism class. I think it's a great unconscious bias exercise to just put those students in front of the assumptions that they made or the efforts that they didn't make based on the accent that you came in with. That's, that's really fascinating. Favorite part was how much more engaged and how much more excited they became about the class. Cause I had a little apprehension about it. I was like, I'm kind of deceiving them. I, I, I don't want them to feel like I'm calling them stupid or something. I, that was definitely not my intention. So I was a little worried about doing it. And it was my idea from the start. My, my buddy was like, eh, I'm not so sure. And then he was like, you know what, go for it. So, but when they opened up and they started asking questions and they showed uh, so much more enthusiasm and interest, I was like, okay, this, this makes up for it. I did the right, I made the right call. And that's what, that's what representation is great for. The more people you can encounter, the more images you can show 
from all sorts of, of backgrounds and, and who buck those, those trends and those stereotypes, the more real it becomes. And, and someone who's met you isn't going to think about Bangladesh in the way in the, in the image that they had of Bangladesh in their head maybe beforehand or, or of Sweden or of, or of rednecks <laughs> for that matter. Right. And the funny thing is, even within the Bengali community, when I engage the Bengali community, they think I'm like born in the U.S. We have these phrases, A, B, C, D, and FOB. A, B, C, D means American-born, confused Daisy. And then FOB is fresh off the boat. So I'm not necessarily a FOB, but I'm also not an A, B, C, D. I'm kind of somewhere in between. This is one of those things where I kind of feel like this is more of an American thing than uh, any other country I've lived in. When I was in college in the U.S., there were a lot of cliques. The South Asian FOBs had their own clique, and the ABCDs had their own clique. And I was the one guy who could, like, cross into both cliques because I could identify with the FOBs and I could identify with the ABCDs. Uh, so that, again, like, in some ways allowed me to be this kind of chameleon moving from clique to clique, culture to culture. And it's not just with, you know, those two groups. There was a lot of other groups where I could easily kind of, like, fit in and people would think, like, I'm part of them. And then the moment I show the opposite side of the coin, they would be really confused. People tend to kind of hover towards their own kind of identity which in some ways is good because it kind of gives them a sense of security, but it is also bad because they kind of miss out on such a large part of life when they stay within their own little communities. I love the, the Vulcan saying, uh, what is it? Infinite. Oh God. It's, 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 it's tricky thing. I can't help you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but it's, it's, the idea is that it's beautiful when you have people of so many different backgrounds interacting with each other, and it's going to come to me as, oh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I think that's what it is. Mm. But I mean, this idea that the more you intermingle with different groups of people, the more different kinds of possibilities in humanity that you can bring about. And I think that's kind of the normal evolutionary process, whether you're talking about physical, I mean, biological evolution, or you're talking about cultural evolution, allowing those kind of interactions and getting out of your comfort zone uh, is, is what I think humanity should be about. I think that's a good note to end on. For me, that's what this, this whole global citizen tribe is about. Whenever I've lived in other countries, I've, I've tried to avoid hanging out with other French people. I actually hate how many French people there are in London because it makes it really hard to avoid. <laughs> but I would much rather kind of blend in locally. But, but, I, but there is a tribe that I always end up hanging out with, and that's whoever is not from wherever we are. <laughs> I think there's just a, a kinship there that is, that is very special. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important. I think you got to get out of your comfort zone because I can guarantee you this life. I can't guarantee you the life after. And if you miss out on these opportunities, you're kind of wasting it. So go have fun. Go have fun indeed, because the global life is fun. And even if I report on immigration and pandemic and ugly politics, I don't want to lose sight of that. What really got to me in this conversation with Danny, it was just a few seconds. I don't know if you caught it, but I made it the title of this episode, The Friend Who Says, I Don't Know What You Are. I'm fascinated by this need that we have to classify people to assign them a category in order to decipher them. 
I know I do it too, I'm sure. But what happens when people don't fit a category? Do any of us truly? If this happens to you too, people trying to figure you out, share your story. I'd love to hear from you. And also, if you'd like to be the next guest in the Border Life series, reach out and tell me a bit more about who you are and your life story. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or find all the links and the contacts that you need at borderlinepod.com, where you can also sign up for the newsletter or support Borderline by becoming a member. Everything you're hearing here is produced, edited, mixed, sound design, and all the action verbs of podcasting by me. If you'd like to hear more and to keep Borderline running, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Any small pledge helps and members get the episode early as well as extra content, access, and gratitude. You can pledge any amount by going to borderlinepod.com or looking for Borderline on Patreon. If you speak French at all, don't forget to check out my French podcast, La VF, where I'm having tons of fun explaining the arcane areas of the US elections, and there are many. I want to give a huge thank you to Danny, also known, though not by his mother, as Ferdos Alfarouk. I'm your host, Isabel Rogol. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. Music by Diala. Talk to you next week.